All right, look at this. Spearhead from space. Woo! Eric Uswa here from the Summons from Gallifrey podcast. This is a reg regular podcast focused on talking about Doctor Who. And in this episode, we're going to be covering Spearhead from Space. This is the third Doctor, played by John Pertwee's first episode, and it's also the first episode done in color TV. Woo! Anyways, let's get started. I'm really excited to dig into this. So I barely mentioned the producer, Derek Sherwin, in our last episode during the coverage of the War Games. Producer Derek Sherwin ended up having the shortest run as a producer on Doctor Who. He oversaw the transition of the series from the War Games into Spearhead from Space, which took him from 1968 to 1970. So basically just two whole stories. Earlier on in his career, Sherwin served as a brief script editor for Doctor Who, responsible for the script for the invasion, which introduced UNIT, the United Nations Intelligence Task Force. More on that shortly. He also oversaw the production conversion of the program from monochrome to color, which turned out to be an extremely expensive exercise, as you might imagine, as it meant upgrading or replacing a lot of equipment. He didn't have the budget to create different monsters or set pieces for every single serial and wasn't left with many options. Due to these budget realities, combined with the terrifyingly low viewer numbers during the tail end of Patrick Troughton's era, Sharon went back to the drawing board to find out what worked in other science fiction based shows. One of his key pieces of research and inspiration was a show called Quarter Mass in the Pit. It helped inspire Derek to reinvent the series and base the stories on present-day Earth, with UNIT being a key component of the new formula. It would give the show a way to combine the science fantasy of the Doctor with the action of an ever-present military force. Thus, Derek was responsible for exiling the Doctor to Earth. Sherwin helped out with casting John Pertwee, who at the time was more known for taking very comedic roles. Sherwin was initially worried about this, but during discussions about the character with John Pertwee, they decided to try playing the Doctor totally straight, which sealed the deal for Sherwin. So Spearhead from Space was written by Robert Holmes and script editor Terence Dix. It's the first adventure of 1970, which marks the start of Season 7. It's the first adventure of the Third Doctor, played by John Pertwee, of course. And it's also the first story of the new companion, Elizabeth Shaw, played by Caroline John. Liz Shaw was a character of a top-level scientist who had the necessary background to give the Doctor a real hand. Due to a BBC strike at the time with the camera operators, they lost a lot of their studio recording time and they were forced to shoot the majority of Spearhead on 16 millimeter film. A lot of the story is filmed on location. In fact, a large majority of this entire story is on location, with only some of the factory settings done in studio. Anecdotally, this also helped John Pertwee with his nerves and settling into the role, as they had a little bit more flexibility to do, re to do retakes than they normally could in studio recordings. Okay, I'm excited about this. Let's get into the synopsis. Okay, episode one, we open with a shot of deep space and a camera panning over to focus on our dear old planet Earth. 
A good model shot, by the way, which is just continuing the goodwill train of this launch into color. A single unit radar operator is at the controls when he spots something. He calls over his superior officer to show her a group of about 50 meteorites are coming down together in a weird funnel shape. As the meteorites are streaking through the sky towards the ground, we cut to a lone po poacher in the woods who's checking in on his traps. He hears the whistle of the incoming meteorites and he dives for cover. There's a few explosions as the meteorites impact near where he was. Back at the radar station, the operator makes a note of the impact area and they send it off to HQ. It's not important, but for this first sequence was a little weird as for some reason there, was, there were a lot of close-ups on this radar operator and he was sweating a lot and I don't understand why. I don't know what the dramatic reason was for doing that. So meanwhile, the poacher has moved back to where the meteorites landed. They're slightly buried in the ground, and he starts to clear away everything with a stick. We start to hear a rhythmic pulsing sound and a flashing light from one of the meteorites. The poacher gets a little bit spooked, and he covers up the meteorite again. Nearby, there's the sudden sound of the TARDIS materializing. The door opens, and the doctor falls out, collapsing on the ground. We then cut to Elizabeth Shaw a passenger in a car being driven to Unit HQ. They go through a tunnel and some weird sketchy streets, basically trying to give you the impression that this is a very hidden HQ, not well known. It, there's no signs out front saying Unit HQ. Then we see the Brigadier in his office. He's working on some paperwork when he's alerted to the arrival of Miss Shaw. Shaw is clearly not at all impressed by the cloak and dagger routine of Unit and even a little insulted that she, she was searched. By the way, during this initial scene, there's a huge echo in this room where they filmed. Definitely means they're on location. They fix it later on, but for this initial scene, there's a big echo. So Shaw has a degree in Cambridge on meteorites, as well as a handful of other degrees. Lethbridge Stewart is impressed and is in a great need of someone like her. Throughout this conversation, she's slightly insulting the Brigadier, insisting that working on things like invisible ink is beneath her abilities. But he brushes it aside and starts to lay down an exposition info dump about UNIT, just in case you missed what UNIT was about during the Patrick Trout era. They deal with the strange and unexplained. They are the United Nations Intelligence Task Force. They're part of the army, but not really part of the army, which they take advantage of in several other stories. He cuts to the chase and tells her about a group of 50 meteorites which landed earlier in the day in the same vicinity as another smaller group of meteorites which landed six months previously. Shaw is immediately intrigued by this. The Brigadier goes on to say that in a recent study, there are over 500 planets in our corner of the galaxy capable of supporting life. Shaw smirks at this and asks why are the chances of an alien visitation any higher today than they were previously. And Lethbridge Stewart responds to say that we've been sending out probes deeper and deeper into space, increasing the chances of being discovered. Shaw laughs when he says that since UNIT was formed, they've already saved the Earth from two alien invasion attempts with the help of another scientist called the Doctor. 
She then calms down when she starts to see how serious the brigadier is. Then we cut to Ashbridge Cottage Hospital. Basically, it looks like a, a cottage hospital, a, a hospital out in the countryside, where we see a unit soldier named Monroe talking to a doctor about the doctor who they're bringing in on a stretcher. The unit soldier has no idea who it is, but says they found him unconscious near a police box. He gets on the phone with a brigadier who asks him if they found any meteorites, but Monroe reports that the mysterious man was found next to a police box in the middle of the woods. The brigadier is instantly convinced and hopeful that it's the doctor and wants armed guards posted on the police box right away. The brigadier and Miss Shaw leave immediately for the hospital. We cut to a nurse who's putting up a recent chest x-ray of the doctor for Dr. Henderson to look at. He takes a quick look and starts accusing someone of playing a joke on them. The nurse is confused, so he points out that the x-ray is showing two hearts, one on each side of the chest. He leaves the room to phone radiology when he suddenly paged himself. He goes to the nearest phone, which happens to be in the smallest corridor ever. This thing is super, super small where a porter is also vacuuming very, very loudly. Dr. Henderson picks up the phone and calls Dr. Lomax from Pathology, who's upset at him and accusing Henderson of playing tricks on him. Lomax is telling him that the blood sample they sent him is not human. Henderson is surprised and swears that he took the blood from the patient himself. Lomax and Henderson are going back and forth about the veracity of the blood, and eventually Henderson hangs up the phone. Throughout all this, the porter is listening intently in the background, especially about the conversation about alien blood. After Dr. Henderson walks away, the porter puts the vacuum away and heads to the lobby of the hospital. He ducks into a phone booth and calls the Daily Chronicle to report this alien blood sample at the hospital. Meanwhile, back in the field, the poacher has a canvas bag out and he's digging up the meteorite that he found earlier. Just as he gets it in the bag, he overhears some unit soldiers nearby. He gets up to take a look and he spots a group of soldiers scanning a field nearby for the meteorites. So he goes back and grabs his canvas bag and heads out. Back at the hospital, a big group of reporters are pressing Monroe for details on this supposed alien staying at the hospital, and why the need for the presence of unit. Hanging out with the reporters is a kind of strange but sinister looking dude named Channing, but we'll get to him later. Just then, the Brigadier and Miss Shaw come through the doors and they're swarmed by the reporters, asking questions about the meteorites, why unit is there, or what about the report of a man from space. The brigadier calls their presence there a training exercise, and then muscles his way through the reporters with Miss Shaw. Questions continue up by the reporters, asking about the meteorites and if there's a connection with this man from space, at which Channing is watching the whole scene intently. The brigadier makes it out of the lobby, finally, with Miss Shaw. The brigadier gets an update from Monroe about the search, and he tells them to make sure that the guards assigned to the police box are given live ammunition. More on that later. They arrive at the doctor's room to see Henderson taking his temperature. After some questions from Le Shaw, Henderson is trying to explain that he's just doing what he can given that the patient has an entire 
entirely different cardiovascular system and blood. It amounts to Henderson basically admitting that he won't do much other than keep him warm and give him rest in order to help him heal. With a big smile, the brigadier is all too pleased at this news, and he moves closer to the bed to see his friend. Suddenly he turns over the doctor to see John Pertwee's face, and not Patrick Troughton. Elizabeth Shaw sees the brigadier's depressed face, and he admits that he's never seen him before. But at the sound of his voice, the doctor opens his eyes and cracks a smile. Lethbridge Stewart! He starts talking, but quickly sees that the brigadier doesn't recognize him. He asks for a mirror for Miss Shaw, and he takes a look at himself. And he's initially not too happy, but he finally admits that, the, that his face isn't too bad. He then excuses himself to the brigadier, and he falls back asleep. The brigadier orders Monroe to arrange transportation for the doctor to their HQ as soon as he's fit to travel. In the meantime, they're to continue to search for the meteorites. He asks Dr. Henderson for another exit out of the building, and the brigadier, Monroe, and Miss Shaw leave. Alone in the room, Henderson sits down to study the doctor's chart. Back in the hospital lobby, some reporters are talking amongst themselves to try and figure out the angles in the story. One of them really looks like Jamie Oliver, by the way, the chef from Britain. They need to use the phone booth to contact their offices, but find that Shan Channing is occupying it. They politely ask him a few times if they can use the phone, noticing that Channing is just standing in the booth, not even doing anything. Suddenly Channing just looks at them and then exits the phone booth without saying a word. And it's kind of important to point out at this point that Channing has like a shiny face. It, it's, hard to, it's hard to describe other than using the word shiny. His face is, I think his face is supposed to look a little bit plasticky. So it's got a bit of a shiny hue to it. Back in the forest, the poacher with his pan canvas bag stumbles out of the woods near the two guards in front of the TARDIS. They point the rifles at him, but relax once they see that he's just a local poacher making his way home. The poacher shows one of the guards a rabbit that he's got to see if he's interested. The guard tells him to stay away from the woods until it's de-restricted. Which sounds weird, but whatever. The poacher tries to ask about the meteorites, which he calls thunderballs, and how much they might be worth. The guard asks him if he knows anything, but the poacher denies it and walks away back home. Back at the hospital, the doctor is leaning over his bed, trying to find his shoes. The nurse forces him back into bed while Henderson comes in to check his chart. The nurse tells him that the doctor's pulse is stabilized at 10 beats a minute. They both look at each other, and then Henderson goes over to look at the, at the doctor. He repeats his request for his shoes, so Henderson opens a cabinet nearby and pulls out the doctor's shoes, handing them over to him. The nurse leaves while Henderson sits back down to look at more charts. I don't know what he's doing, but his back is turned to the doctor. The doctor quietly sits up and pulls out the shoes. He looks inside each one until the TARDIS key falls out in his lap. He holds the key in his mouth and he puts the shoes under his pillow. Henderson hears someone coming and turns around just to get a judo chop to the, to the neck by a man in hospital clothes. Another one is with him and they tape the doctor's mouth and put him into a wheelchair. 
They start walking him out of the hospital with the doctor looking limp or acting limp. A few moments later, Henderson recovers and stumbles to his feet. He makes it outside and Monroe rushes over to see what's wrong. Outside the hospital, Channing opens up the doors at the back of an ambulance and the two dudes start pulling the doctor in the wheelchair up a very small ramp. One of them moves around to help the other pull the ramp up and the doctor takes his opportunity to push his wheel forward. The wheelchair shoots down the ramp and starts going down the road. Channing and the other two dudes quickly close the doors and start the ambulance to head after the doctor. While this is happening, Monroe and a unit soldier run out of the front doors. As Channing and the van drive by, drives by, Monroe orders the soldier to shoot at the ambulance and aim for the tires. With the nearby sound of the gunfire, the two soldiers guarding the TARDIS are alerted and ready to their guns, wondering what the commotion is about. Monroe is sprinting down the road, shouting orders at the other soldiers to take out the tires of the ambulance. I don't know how many soldiers are there. There's a whole ton, anyway. Meanwhile, the doctor in the wheelchair is going through several side passageways and makes it to a clearing near the forest. Monroe and some others catch up to the scene and they see that the wheelchair is tipped over, but no sign of the doctor. The two guards in front of the TARDIS are really expecting trouble with their guns locked and loaded. They hear someone coming towards them in the trees. One of the guards shouts for the person to identify themselves, but the person keeps coming towards them, or the trees keep moving towards them, I should say. The other guard makes a decision and fires a single shot. The doctor falls over again. Cliffhanger! Pretty cool. Episode 2. Monroe comes out of the bushes behind the doctor. All three soldiers run to the doctor and turn him over to see that his mouth was taped. One of the guards asks, is he dead? We cut to Dr. Henderson finishing the sentence saying no to the brigadier back in the hospital with the doctor in the bed. It's kind of cheesy, but it's a neatly timed edit. I don't know what the, what it's called, a jump cut, a jump cut mid sentence. Henderson says he's unconscious, but more unconscious than anyone he's ever seen. He shows Monroe and the Brigadier an EEG reading, which is just a basically flat line. Yikes. However, Henderson suspects that this level of unconsciousness is self-induced. Henderson advises against trying to move the doctor again, and as the Brigadier is leaving, he holds up the TARDIS key that Henderson had found in the doctor's hand. The Brigadier recognizes it immediately and takes it with him. Outside, Monroe informs the Brigadier that the TARDIS has been taken back to the Unit HQ. They come to a small chest, and Monroe opens it up, pulling out a shell of one of the meteorites that they had found. It basically just looks like a small plastic casing. The Brigadier wants it back at HQ as well, and also doubles the guards around the hospital in case Channing and his men try again. He's not sure why they were trying to kidnap the doctor. Or the man, I should say. They're not convinced he's the doctor yet. Monroe pulls out a photo of Channing that was taken when the brigadier first arrived in the hospital. Monroe has made background checks of every reporter, and they all mentioned not seeing Channing before. And some nurses even recognized Channing as the one driving the ambulance that was driving away. 
Now we cut to a plastics factory. We see a bunch of footage of doll heads making their way through the creation process. Some liquid plastic being poured into molds, the heads being cooled, and then eyes being attached and hair getting sewn in, etc. Throughout this footage, there's a dude in a suit being led around the factory floor by a receptionist. It's never explained. Some blonde woman with a very, very shiny face. Incredibly shiny. He's looking around and mentioning all the new changes in the factory, but the woman says nothing. They make their way up some stairs towards an office. The dude even comments that the door to his workshop is suddenly locked. Again, she just looks at him and says nothing. We then see Channing himself slowly walking up the stairs behind them. His face and hair look incredibly shiny. The dude, named John Ransom, comes into the office where an older-looking one named George Hibbert is sitting in a chair. Ransom starts demanding some answers. He was sent to America to sell the new doll prototype he created with a promise of being made partner, only to return and find that he's been fired by George. George starts to weakly mention that they've adopted a new policy. Ransom keeps pressing him, mentioning that there's staff he's never seen before working in the factory, with security notices all over the place. George mentions a new process they're developing, a lot of new changes. Ransom then brings up that his own workshop is even sealed off. Hibbert looks at him and warns him to stay away from the workshop. He'll have, he'll have all of Ransom's equipment sent to him. He starts to warn John that he shouldn't have come and he should leave right away, while at the same time he's rubbing a spot on the back of his neck. Ransom spots Channing quietly coming into the room, and George becomes a lot more assertive. Hibbert ends the conversation and bids Ransom goodbye. Ransom angrily puts the papers back in his suitcase and he leaves the room. As he's heading back towards the stairs, Ransom stops outside his workshop room, and he takes a quick look around to see if anyone's watching. Quietly behind him, we see that Channing has opened the door, and he is watching John. Ransom half-heartedly tries the door handle, but he finds it's locked. He then looks up to see Channing watching him, so Ransom gives him a little bit of an embarrassed look, and he heads down the stairs. Back at Unit HQ, Ms. Shaw is in a makeshift lab with tons of equipment everywhere, trying to analyze the plastic casing that the Brigadier has brought back. The Brigadier is trying to get some answers out of Liz, but she's really engrossed in moving beakers full of liquid around. I slightly joke, but she's obviously really working at trying to break down the material of this plastic casing. She again points out to the Brigadier that she deals with facts, not science fiction and green men from outer space. The Brigadier is holding his tongue, but he's getting increasingly annoyed with this attitude and tells Miss Shaw that there are things outside of her cozy little bubble if she had more of an open mind. She's obviously still very much a skeptic, even mocking the Brigadier about an alien traveling through time and space in a police box. Back at the factory, George is starting to lose it in front of Channing. Channing is trying to calm him down and reminding him to just keep running the factory. He's basically mesmerizing George, making him repeat that he understands. 
Channing mentions that there's still two units that haven't been recovered, aka meteorites. It's too dangerous to go near the hospital again, but Channing mentions that if the units reveal themselves, they'll give off a locator beacon that Channing can spot right away. Now we cut to the poacher again. He's dragging a very heavy chest out of a shed. He opens it up and inside is the canvas bag with one of the meteorites. As he pulls the meteorite out of the bag, it starts pulsing again. We then cut to the woods nearby. A figure in a blue jumpsuit looks up and starts moving in a direction, presumably towards the poacher's house. As this figure is turning around, we see that he's got a plastic doll head looking face. The poacher's wife starts to shout at the poacher from the back door. So he quickly puts the meteorite back in the canvas bag and throws it into the shed, closing the door. His wife comes up to him, suspiciously looking at the giant chest on the ground. She opens it up to see nothing unusual inside it. After she goes back into the house, the poacher gets the pulsing meteorite back out of the shed and puts it back into the chest, closing it up. Back out in the woods, that figure in the blue jumpsuit stops walking and he starts looking around confused. Back at Unit HQ, the Brigadier is staring at the TARDIS, which is in the back corner of Miss Shaw's laboratory. Just to remind the audience that the Brigadier is in possession of the TARDIS key from Dr. Henderson, he pulls it out. The intercom buzzes, and General Scobie has arrived for a visit. He's a liaison with a regular army. He comes in asking about the progress of the meteorite investigation. The Brigadier leads him back to the equipment and introduces the General to Ms. Shaw, who's been studying the shell fragment. The General spots the police box and he starts to make a joke, until Ms. Shaw tells him that it's a spaceship in disguise. His face goes deadpan. Cut back to the hospital. A unit soldier is keeping an eye on an old-timey roadster in the parking lot until Monroe pulls up in a jeep and orders the soldier to join them and look in for more meteorites. Inside the hospital, the doctor is finally up and about and trying to sneak out. He's heading down a corridor when he hears the voice of Henderson coming, so he ducks into a room marked Doctors Only. The doctor finds a shower and starts to smile. Henderson brings in some VIP visitor to find the singing doctor in the shower wearing a shower cap. The doctor is singing away very loudly as the VIP is hanging up his cape. Henderson glances a little bit irritated at the doctor, so he invites the VIP to his office to look at the doctor's charts. Of course, he doesn't recognize it's the doctor. They exit the room. The doctor gets out of the shower and steals the clothes of the VIP. Meanwhile, in a nearby field, Monroe and his men finish digging around a fallen meteorite and pick it up out of the ground. The meteorite starts pulsing with a quicker pace. Nearby, another dude in a blue jumpsuit turns toward the fresh meteorite signal and crashes through the brush towards it. The doctor finishes changing and ducks back out into the hospital, narrowly avoiding Henderson and the VIP, who are now heading back towards the bed where the doctor was staying. The doctor makes his way out front and looks around spotting the VIP's old-timey car. Luckily, the keys are in the ignition, of course. He's able to turn the ignition on, and he makes his way out of the parking lot. 
Cut to the Brigadier and Shaw in the lab with another well-timed edit, with the Brigadier saying, well, at least he won't make it far. The Brigadier starts to think and walks towards the TARDIS, mentioning that the Doctor is stuck on Earth if he's without his TARDIS. Shaw reminds him that he was just about to open it up. So the Brigadier puts the key in the lock, but the door won't open. Cut to Monroe handing a soldier the small metal box containing the meteorite they found. He tells the soldier to take it back to HQ. The jeep is driving down the road when suddenly the blue figure jumpsuit dude pretty much jumps right out of the brush, right in front of the jeep. The soldier screams, swerves to avoid him, and crashes into a tree, killing himself. It's a really well done stunt, by the way. The blue figure jumpsuit moves to the back of the jeep and picks up the chest with the meteorite. The doctor pulls up to the secret unit HQ headquarters underneath the bridge and through the tunnel. He stops and before the guard can ask him anything, he starts berating him that he hasn't got a pass, won't give his name, but he wants to see the brigadier immediately. The brigadier lets him in and the doctor shows him that he found the place because of a homing device on his watch. A watch, by the way, that we never, never again see. He asks about the TARDIS key, to which the Brigadier admits that he has it, but it won't work. The Doctor laughs and says that it will for him. He starts to comment on his change of appearance when the Brigadier suddenly remembers that Miss Shaw is in the room. He introduces the two of them, and together they hit it off fairly quickly. The Brigadier says that he can't give him the key until he's sure there's no connection between the Doctor and the meteorite shower. At the mention of these meteorites, the Doctor is intrigued and finds the plastic shell that Miss Shaw has been testing. He picks it up and he starts to ask what was inside the shell. Shaw sounds surprised, so the Doctor explains that it looks like a piece of a hollow shell. They strike a deal that if the Doctor helps them, he'll get his TARDIS key back from the Brigadier. Since they haven't recovered any complete meteorites yet, the Doctor theorizes that someone else has collected them all and have taken them someplace. The question is where? We then cut to the outside of the plastic factory, where Ransom is climbing one of the walls to sneak inside. It's one of those not dangerous but dangerous stunts because there's a lot of barbed wire at the top of the wall that he sneaks over but he manages to climb over without impaling himself, thank goodness. General Scobie is inside the factory to take a look at the plastic replica of himself, which the, which the factory is putting together. Channing mentions that the plastic replica is in need of some additional measurements from the general, which they can't do anywhere but at the factory, and then they leave the room. Back outside, Ransom is running around trying to find a way into the factory itself. He spots a side door and uses an old crowbar to muscle his way inside. He goes up some stairs carrying a metal rod and makes his way towards the workshop door which was locked earlier. He uses the metal rod to bust open the lock. Inside is a room full of figures in blue jumpsuits, all very still like store mannequins, standing on a platform. There's a bunch of computer equipment that Ransom starts to look at and so he doesn't notice that one of the blue-suited jumpsuit mannequins steps off the platform to head towards Ransom. 
Ransom hears a noise, and he slowly turns around to see the oncoming plastic man walking towards him. The camera zooms in on Ransom's face as his mouth is wide open, and he's momentarily paralyzed with fear. Cliffhanger! Episode 3 There's a slight change in the scene just before the previous cliffhanger. After the blue-suited mannequin steps off the platform, it holds up its right hand, which partially detaches to reveal the nozzle of a, of a laser. It's a real cool effect. Ransom ducks around some equipment as the mannequin fires a couple of shots from his hand. He dashes back outside and down a flight of stairs outside the factory building and ducks into a doorway. The mannequin is standing at the top of the stairs and about to fire when it hears General Scobie and Channing walking on the ground nearby. The general doesn't notice anything, but Channing spots the mannequin and gives an order telepathically. The mannequin drops his arm and walks back inside. Behind them both, Ransom sprints from the doorway and back to the section of the wall that he had climbed over. He lands back on the other side and starts running away with an expression of almost pure panic. Channing and Hibbert see the general off and make their way back inside. In the control room, Channing is going through the instruments, identifying that it was Ransom who had escaped. They can track him via his brain print. Channing will send an Auton. We finally get a name for the blue-suited mannequin. Hibbert isn't keen on this idea, as the Auton will kill Ransom, but Channing convinces him or mesmerizing him, that it's the only way. Ransom stumbles out of some bushes near a unit soldier and then collapses. Meanwhile, we're back at the poacher's house. He's outside chopping a piece of wood when his wife starts to talk about the rumors of the meteorites being responsible for the death of that one unit soldier who was driving the jeep. He died with a look of fear on his face. The poacher shoes away his wife, but he definitely looks scared. Monroe and another soldier have Ransom in a tent who's paralyzed with fear and still trembling in shock. They're trying to get him to talk, but he's just repeating incomplete words, finally saying something like factory. Monroe decides to bring him back to HQ immediately. Back at HQ, the doctor and Miss Shaw are still testing the shell fragment. Shaw throws up her hands in frustration at not being able to identify a single element of the fragment, but the doctor tries to reason with her that they're doing the best they can with this primitive equipment. She remarks that it's one of the most advanced labs she's ever been in. The doctor tells her that what they really need is a lateral molecular rectifier. Blech. Lateral molecular rectifier. That's a hard word to say three times. Imagine saying that in front of the camera. Lateral molecular rectifier, which he just happens to have in his TARDIS, of course. She still doesn't believe there's anything in the police box, and even laughs harder when the doctor tries to assure her that he's got a whole laboratory in there. He tries to explain to her that she's only looking at it as a police box, when it is, in fact, a dimensionally transcendental machine. Anyways, he convinces Liz that if she could get the TARDIS key from the brigadier, in order for him to get the machine they need from inside it. 
Back at the tent, Monroe is reporting to HQ when another soldier brings in Sam Seeley, aka the poacher, who wants to find out about a reward for information on one of the Thunderballs. Monroe and Seeley are going back and forth, with Seeley trying to find out about a reward without admitting that he's not only seen a meteorite, but that he has one in his possession. Monroe quickly gets impatient, though, and demands the truth from the poacher. Back at the factory control room, Channing and Hibbert are talking about Ransom. The Auton that Channing had sent has lost him. Ransom has gone out of range, but their equipment will pick him up if he ever returns to the area. Channing mentions that they're just about to enter the final phase of their plan. They're missing the last meteorite, which just happens to be the swarm leader. Back at Unit HQ, Ransom is telling the whole story about the Auton to the Brigadier. Ransom is convinced that they were made at the factory itself, given what he saw of their equipment. Just then, Miss Shaw comes in to try and talk to the Brigadier about the key. He dismisses her, telling her that her work in the lab is just one part, one tiny part of the overall picture. He then turns to face Ransom to hear more of his story. Shaw glances down and spots the key on the Brigadier's desk and quickly grabs it before walking out. The Brigadier has a few more questions for Ransom, and they talk for a few more minutes before he realizes that the key is missing. Back at the lab, Liz hands the doctor the key. He promises he'll be right out with the equipment. When he puts the key in, it turns right away to the surprise of Shaw. The doctor explains that the TARDIS has a metabolism detector, so that it will only open for him. He then pops inside the TARDIS, closing the door. The Brigadier comes into the room asking Shaw for the key, which she admits that she's given to the doctor. The Brigadier can't believe that she could be so gullible. As he finishes that sentence, we hear the TARDIS trying to dematerialize. But the sound effect is a very slow motion sound, TARDIS sound. It's a very grindy, it's a very grindy sound. There's obviously a problem, and a bang comes from inside the TARDIS and we see a lot of smoke pouring out through the door. The door opens, and the doctor sheepishly comes out trying to make up a story about testing the TARDIS controls. Liz Shaw is mad at him for tricking her, and the brigadier is standing right behind her with the same expression. He does confess and come clean, saying that he couldn't bear to be stranded on one planet during one time. He concludes that they have changed the dematerialization codes on him, they being the Time Lords. The Brigadier and Liz are not understanding all of what he's saying, but finally the Brigadier reminds the Doctor that he promised to help them. He agrees, but he confesses that he does need more to go on. They can't determine anything from the one fragment. At the poacher's house, the wife is calling for Sam, but of course he's not around. She opens the door to the shed and pulls out the heavy chest. Back at Unit HQ, the Doctor, Liz, and the Brigadier are re-interviewing Ransom. He tells them about Channing and how he had what appeared to be a mental hold on his old friend George Hibbert. The Doctor wants them to pay a visit to the factory. Back at the tent, the poacher is getting nervous and trying to leave, but Monroe is pressing him for more details. Finally, the poacher looks like he might finally confess that he has one. Back at the poacher's house, his wife unlocks the chest and pops it open. She gasps when she sees the pulsing meteorite. 
Hibbert and Channing are watching a scanner as it's just picked up this new meteorite. Channing orders a nearby Auton to go and collect it. The Auton is moving through the forest towards the poacher's house. It comes out of a clearing and starts making its way towards the house. In a trunk, shouts Monroe in disbelief back at the tent. Another one of those clever edits. The poacher admits he couldn't think of any other place to put it. Monroe stands to attention as the brigadier Liz, the doctor and Ransom enter the tent. Monroe informs him that the poacher has a meteorite at his house and they were just about to go collect it. The brigadier decides to do it and he takes the doctor and Shaw with him. Ransom stays at the tent. Back at the poacher's house, the wife closes the lid to the trunk again and tries to push the heavy chest back in the shed. As she does so, a dog starts barking off camera and then suddenly goes quiet after a few minutes. The wife looks a little scared. She then hears a lot of crashing in the house. She goes inside to investigate and confronts the Auton. She screams and speed walks back outside and returns to the shed. She pulls out a shotgun and loads it, while the Auton is slowly walking towards her. I mean really slowly. She threatens the Auton and finally empties two shells into it, but it keeps moving and it knocks her out. It kind of looks like she's dead, but she's just knocked out. With the signal to the meteorite muffled, the Auton can't locate it, so it just keeps crashing through the house trying to find it. Eventually, it comes back outside and it goes into the shed. Just then, the Brigadier and Monroe knock on the front door a few times and then come into the house to see that it's been totally torn apart. They hear a noise from out back where the shed is and they rush to investigate. The Auton comes out of the shed to face Monroe and the Brigadier, who pull out their handguns and start firing at it. Meanwhile, in the control room, Channing's face is all twisted up and he's ordering the Auton to recall. The Auton runs away as the Brigadier fires a few more rounds into it while the Doctor and Liz look on. In the control room, Hibbert is asking Channing what's going on. A weakened Channing tells him that Unit has captured the Swarm Leader. It's too soon to fight the soldiers, but they must find a way to delay them. Another alarm rings on a panel, and Channing says that Ransom has returned to the area. So the poacher's wife is okay, she's just unconscious on the ground. Shaw is putting a coat on her to keep her warm while the brigadier leaves to call her an ambulance. The doctor has opened the trunk and is examining the meteorite and wants to get it back to the HQ for analysis right away. Meanwhile at the tent, an Auton rips through the back and steps in to find Ransom lying on a bench. He sits up in total paralysis, shock, fear. Back at the control room, Channing orders total destruction. The Auton shoots Ransom a couple of times and his body completely disintegrates. The Auton leaves without being detected. At the poacher's house, the doctor cautions the brigadier that they must all move slow until they can figure out what's going on. There's definitely something at the factory. Later, the brigadier is questioning the guard at the tent who didn't see anything since he was out front the whole time. The doctor determines that the tent was cut from the outside. He suggests it's time to visit the factory immediately. 
We cut to the factory where the brigadier, Liz, and the doctor are being led through the building by the same blonde secretary that had guided Ransom around at the beginning. She's just as quiet. They go up the stairs to the office, and they are waiting outside the door. There's a great shot here of the brigadier looking back over his shoulder to see Channing staring at them through this rippled plastic window. It's a terrific shot, perfectly framed. Channing appears to have multiple eyes due to the reflecting of this plastic window, which is a great foreshadow that Channing is part of a collective. Many eyes working together. Anyways, it's a really cool effect. Cut to inside Hibbert's office where he's getting a good laugh out of the Brigadier's story. He tries to argue that Ransom was just disgruntled and making up stories to get back at him for firing him. The doctor asks him what the factory is working on, and Hibbert says that they're working on a new line of store mannequins for display around the country. Hibbert assures them that while the mannequins are super flexible, they can't move on their own. The doctor ends the discussion and they leave the office. Back at HQ, the brigadier is telling Shaw and the doctor about Channing and how he was the same man who was at the hospital. He's going to make a call to General Scobie to get some help with the factory. The doctor has his machine hooked up to the meteorite and calls over Liz and the brigadier. The machine appears to be measuring mental energy emanating from the meteorite. The doctor reminds them that he had originally theorized that the outside was just a container for whatever is within. He wonders if they can communicate with it. The phone rings and it's General Scobie. The brigadier asks him if he's noticed anything irregular at the plastics factory, but the general just tells him that everything was normal. He hears some of the brigadier's accusations, so he agrees to come see the brigadier immediately promising his support. There's a knock at the door and Scobie hangs up the phone. He opens the door and he sees himself. A walking plastic replica, which looks identical to the general. The Auton general slowly walks into the house towards the general. Cliffhanger! Episode 4, here we go. Conclusion. In the unit HQ lab, the doctor, Liz, and the brigadier are still studying the swarm leader meteorite. The doctor is theorizing that since it is a brain, or part of an intelligence, they can communicate with it. He theorizes that each of the meteorites are all part of the same entity, or collective intelligence, and can all communicate between each other. This intelligence isn't sentient in and of itself, and thus would need some kind of physical form. Liz finishes this thinking by mentioning the plastic factory, to which the doctor nods. The brigadier gets paged for another call with General Scobie. The brigadier is hoping to get the official word to move in on the plastic factory, but instead the general tells him that it's off-limits due to some important work, and he hangs up on the brigadier. The frustrated brigadier vows to contact the home secretary and go above Scobie, but the doctor points out that this will take time. The brigadier then makes an offhand remark about the general just being impressed by the facsimile the plastic factory made of him. The doctor presses him further, and the brigadier mentions that the factory has made a bunch of facsimiles for Madame Tussauds, which is a famous waxworks museum in Britain. The doctor doesn't like the sound of this. 
We cut to the waxworks where we see a bunch of them standing on a pedestal. Among the visitors are the doctor and Liz. Liz starts to notice that all the people in this display room are facsimiles of top civil servants and bureaucrats. There's no astronauts or famous personalities. They then spot the facsimile of General Scobie, which is a fast turnaround considering that Scobie only visited the plastics factory a day before. The doctor starts examining the plastic Scobie, which is starting to embarrass Liz a little. Finally, the doctor asks her if she was making a plastic copy of Scobie, would she go through the trouble of giving him a watch with the current time? They try to contact the brigadier, but he's out himself trying to find the home secretary. The doctor decides that the only thing they can do is wait. Wait for closing time at the waxworks. Cut to Hibbert and Channing back at the factory. Channing is driven to make sure that they recover that last meteorite. They must get the swarm leader. Now that they have a facsimile of General Scobie, they can use him to get the meteorite. Hibbert is doubtful, but Channing explains that the enforcer autons are the single function entities, whereas the facsimiles are highly advanced with even similar brain patterns and functions. Channing says that the time has come to activate the other facsimiles. Hibbert is becoming aware that Channing isn't human, but he's definitely still under Channing's control. Back at Unit HQ, General Scobie is there trying to take the meteorite from Monroe. Monroe isn't so eager to part with it without the Brigadier's direct order, but Scobie eventually bullies him into it. The General's face is very shiny. Back at the waxworks, it's now closing time. The museum curator is shutting off all the lights and leaves for the night. The doctor and Liz come out from behind a curtain and slowly move through the room, examining the facsimiles. They come to General Scobie again, and the doctor thinks that this is the real General Scobie, with his facsimile walking around somewhere. They hear footsteps of someone coming, so they duck behind a curtain. Channing and Hibbert come into the room. Channing stops and looks around, saying that he can sense another alien life form. He orders Hibbert to open the doors. Suddenly, all at once, the facsimiles come to life and start walking out the door in an orderly fashion. Hibbert wants to know where they're going, but Channing says they're going to take their places. It's time to begin their work. Channing and Hibbert leave the room. The doctor and Liz come back out from behind the curtain to see that all the facsimiles are gone. Suddenly, Hibbert comes up behind the doctor. The doctor tries to convince him that Channing is an enemy of the entire human race. He urges him to come to Unit to escape Channing's influence. The doctor and Liz freeze around a corner as Channing comes back into the room to get Hibbert. They both leave. At the Unit HQ, the doctor and Liz are raising the alarm to the brigadier. He must act immediately or by morning all the key positions in government will be compromised and it'll be too late. Back at the plastics factory, Channing is retrieving the swarm leader meteorite from Scobie. The general tells him that Hibbert is no longer necessary, and Channing agrees. Channing lifts the meteorite from the general and places it into a nearby machine. There's some pulsing sound effects as the existing intelligence detects the introduction of the swarm leader into the collective. 
which is it's all encased i i didn't really describe it earlier but it's on it's in this giant rectangular box that's in the center of the room which is more of a tank you can't see inside it by the way but it's it's basically a metal box with computers all around the outside of it Channing tells the general that at dawn they will activate the autons. Back at the lab, an exhausted Liz Shaw is helping the doctor put together some kind of machine. She's yawning and nearly passing out while holding some wires for the doctor in a particular order. Now we cut to one of the really coolest sequences in Doctor Who. How they came up with this, I don't know, but it's really an exciting one. Picture an early morning regular downtown city street so the road is lined up with shops that are still closed but you get you get a picture that this is a busy part of the city during the day it's quiet but life is slowly starting to wake up with the occasional car driving by etc lots of these shops all have plastic mannequins in the display case the camera pans by one of these shore stop windows and then stops Suddenly, the mannequins in, this, in the display cases jerk to life. They all lift their right hand, which detaches to reveal those laser guns. Nearby, a single policeman is checking in on a homeless guy. I don't know. It, he's, uh, it looks like a homeless guy. When they hear the sound of a lot of glass being smashed and store alarms going off, the policeman runs to see what's going on and comes around the corner to be faced with a bunch of autons, which are all dressed up as dummies from the shop shop windows they kill the policeman with a single shot and some people in the area start screaming more and more mannequins all over the street are coming to life in the display cases and smashing through the store windows killing people as they go there's a bunch of people waiting at a nearby bus stop when they're gunned down by some of the autons Citizens start screaming and running away in different directions, with some of them being gunned down as they run past by the autons. The stunts are really effective. It's very hard to be running and fall from being shot, but this one stunt guy does it, and it looks incredible. Back at the HQ, the brigadier's phone is ringing off the hook with these reports of the mannequins coming alive and killing everyone. The Brigadier states that window dummies are coming to life and attacking police stations, barracks, and communication centers all over the country. The doctor is putting the finishing touches on his machine to fight the Autons, but he needs the help of the Brigadier and any soldiers he can put together to strike at the factory. Meanwhile, in the Auton control room, Hibbert is remembering the doctor's warnings about Channing. He picks up a metal rod and he smashes one of the computers. Channing comes in to try and calm him down, but Hibbert demands to know who or what Channing is. Channing reveals that he's part of the Nestine Consciousness. They have colonized other worlds, and now it's time to colonize Earth. They will destroy the humans, but Channing will spare Hibbert since he's helped them. Which, of course, he won't. They'll kill him right away. Hibbert tries to weakly smash another computer, and a nearby Auton shoots him dead. Back at Unit HQ, the convoy is finally leaving to attack the factory. The Brigadier and some of his troops are in a couple of army trucks, with the Doctor and Liz following them in the old-timey roadster that the Doctor took from the hospital. They break through an outer door of the factory complex, and they enter. 
Channing is alerted of the attack and watches the brigadier and his team trying to enter the factory. Suddenly, General Scobie shows up with some army troops, ordering the brigadier and his men to surrender. The brigadier is telling everyone around him that this isn't the real General Scobie, but of course, none of Scobie's men believes him. Liz is holding the doctor's machine, and he plugs one end of a long cord into it. He then goes down the stairs towards the general and asks him to speak into the microphone, looking piece that's at the other end of this long cord. Liz switches the machine on, and the general collapses. There's a piercing loud noise, and the general collapses. They turn him over to see his face, and now it's just a plastic blob. Meanwhile, there's several screams as the real General Scobie, standing in the waxworks, comes to life and starts looking around to see where he is. It's a pretty cool effect. <laughs> you can just imagine how freaky that would be. While the brigadier assumes command of General Scobie's men, the doctor and Liz sneak into the factory and head up the stairs to the office. They duck behind some machinery when they hear an auton approaching. It gets close enough to be affected by the doctor's microphone machine, and it collapses. Outside, a bunch of autons come through a door to face the brigadier and the rest of the soldiers. And then here we get a pretty good action sequence. The soldiers take cover and start firing while the autons keep moving forward, immune to the bullets. In the Nestine control room, Liz crouches down behind some computers holding the doctor's machine while he walks into the room to confront Channing. They discuss the Nestine intelligence, and Channing assures the doctor that they cannot be killed. They are indestructible. Outside, the Autons are slowly killing more soldiers, and are still immune to all the gunfire that's being rained down on them. The doctor is now holding the microphone piece in Channing's face, telling him he can eliminate them. Channing hits a button on that large tank I mentioned earlier and moves away. The top of the metal container pops open and some smoke and tentacles start pouring out. The doctor is yelling at Liz to switch on the machine, but it's not turning on. Liz starts to frantically check all the connections. Meanwhile, a tentacle wraps itself around the doctor's neck and starts to choke him. More smoke and tentacles come out of the tank, and they're all threatening the doctor. And here, Pertwee does a heroic job of trying to struggle while at the same time acting to cause more tentacles to wrap around him. It's actually pretty good. Even though you know that they're all rubber. He's begging Liz to fix the machine. Liz is checking every connection and finally spots the problem. The end of the cord to the microphone had popped out, of course. She reattaches it and switches the machine on. Again, there's a piercing loud noise and the tentacles around the doctor start to go limp. After a few moments, the nesting creature in the tank bursts. Around the courtyard outside, all the autons suddenly start collapsing to the ground. The doctor finishes untangling himself and tells Liz she can switch it off. The smoke clears and they find Channing's body on the ground. He was totally plastic. Back at Unit HQ, Liz briefly summarizes the machine to the brigadier, but he's trying to find out from the doctor if the Nestine Collective will try again. The doctor tells him that they're telepathic, so the rest of the Collective certainly know what happened. With the trouble over, the doctor tells the brigadier that they need to discuss the terms for his assistance. The brigadier offers him a salary, but the doctor rejects it. He has no use for earth money. 
He wants complete access to the lab so he can repair his TARDIS, along with the help of Miss Shaw. He'll return the car he stole from the hospital, but he'd like a similar vehicle. The brigadier agrees, then asks him what his name is for all the paperwork that he's going to have to write up. And the doctor answers with Smith. Dr. John Smith. And that's the episode. Well, just like before, let's go through the numbers. So episode one pulled in 8.4 million viewers. Episode two, 8.1 million viewers. Episode three, 8.3. And finally, episode four with 8.1 million viewers. Drastic change from the last story of the War Games, where the numbers were down to three. But I'm not surprised that these numbers are so high, given the quality of the story was really quite good. I don't know if it's the fact that the show is now in color, but the tone of this story feels a lot different from the earlier Troughton years. The location filming for this first story is excellent and really adds a lot of depth. The 16mm filming definitely made a huge difference, especially for a lot of the forest filming along with the sequence of the Autons breaking out of the shop windows. I know I joked a lot about the bad audio in episode 1, but thankfully someone on the production recognized the same thing, and it was addressed right away in the later episodes. The experiment with that weird jump cut editing somewhat works, but I'm glad they don't really continue the trend in other stories. John Pertwee comes out of the gate incredibly strong here, really demonstrating his demeanor and charm. Liz Shaw comes off as a very highly intelligent scientist who's starting to open her mind on other possibilities thanks to the influence of the Doctor. The Brigadier himself starts to become more fleshed out and more rounded than his prior stories with Patrick Troughton, which is smart as this first season of Pertwee is mostly centered around these three characters. Dudley Simpson does his usual great musical score, trying to blend in a, a mix of suspense and action. The battle with the nesting intelligence was borderline silly with the rubber tentacles attacking the doctor, but Pertwee does everything he can of selling them. And it's not very long sequence. For myself, I'm giving Spearhead from Space 4.5 tentacles out of 5. The casting was terrific, the acting and the scripts felt very good, I think there was a pretty good balance between Pertwee finding his footing in the hospital and then dealing with the actual story of the nesting intelligence. However, he was slightly too long in his bed, not really saying anything or doing anything, and you rarely saw his face for most of episode one. The callback to the war games with the mention of Dr. John Smith was a nice touch. And Robert Holmes does it again. He's a great editor and story writer for Doctor Who with a lot of his contributions. And in this, in this one, he sums up the John Pertwee era in one story. And it happens to be the first one. Thanks a lot for spending this time with me today. I really appreciate it. This was Spearhead from Space. If you've got feedback on this episode that you want me to go through, then please send it to mailbag at summonsfromgallifrey.com. And I'll make sure to pull it in and go through it in our discussion episode for this story. And that's what we're going to tackle next. Have a good day, everyone. Thanks very much. Peace.